Hello, I'm Heat. And I'm Rocket Kid. And this is Ordinary Chaos. A podcast about ordinary life. Because you don't have to be famous to be interesting. What's normal for me might be unusual for me. Let's do this! we get into the ins and outs of the life and music of Keith Kelly, and there are some really juicy bits in today's episode, I wanted to make two quick announcements. First, in this entire episode, I managed to not bring up that Keith wrote the music for Ordinary Chaos. So if you love the music that you hear at the beginning and the end, that is thanks to Keith. Also, a quick heads up that there is some language in this episode that is not family friendly. Now, on to Keith. Hi, Heat here with Keith Kelly. Keith is a saxophone player and woodwind player. And and anything else that I need to add to that? (laughs) Yeah, uh, I mean, at this point, I think as a creative artist, writing music is something I do a lot and, and making like recordings and that kind of stuff is 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 definitely been elevated in the last year or so as a way even I self identify, especially without live performances occurring with any frequency. And I it's definitely not the level of like recording artist, but um <laughs> but spending more time recording and putting out recordings and frankly way more time than I've played live in the last 18 months or so. So that's that's been a big shift has it been was it hard to shift? I mean it was certainly shocking to shift especially because right up until march of 2020 i was traveling uh i had recently been to the jazz educators network national conference in new orleans like just a month before that and two weeks before that i was presenting a bunch of jazz improv stuff at the california music educators state conference and in retrospect i had no idea i think about the last couple of gigs i played played something at the the sun's arena for the valentine's love jam like play a bunch of r&b music on the big stage like lowrider and all that stuff and then it was just like wham like you know march 7th 11th or whatever that was you know gigs started getting canceled i i had actually canceled a gig that sunday where i was like i'm not sure if i'm comfortable going out because i don't know and by the by that next saturday all of my gigs had been canceled for the rest of the year so steady gigs that i play at local creative music spaces things that had been long standing that had been booked for a long time just things just started coming off the books so my first reaction to it was okay sort of forced hiatus cool i have ton- i have plenty of things i can do in conversation with a lot of my colleagues and people that i work with closely i just went all in on making music in my home studio. Like I had a really good excuse to be like, well, you don't have any other creative outlets right now. Better figure out how to use the gear that you have and the stuff that you can do to like be an artist. So I I started putting music out pretty quickly after because I had lots of periods to reflect and I had two young kids at home and my wife and I were working remotely. And so it was kind of my saving grace, (laughs) though I didn't have something to go out and do. I had something to stay in and do. And there was a lot of community that came together pretty quickly around this idea that like, hey, we're just going to keep connected. We're going to keep making music. We're going to keep putting things out. We're going to keep generating content. And then, of course, all of that failed into the summer 
but there was like some some real steep learning curves. I'm actually I'm super proud and super excited of the work that I've been putting out and the work that I've been doing both by myself and in collaboration with other groups that I'm in. But it it was fast and shocking and I'm lucky that I'm an improviser because I was able to like kind of dodge and kind of keep things moving when if that wasn't my skill set, I think I probably would have been laid out pretty pretty flat. That makes a lot of sense. So what kind of stuff have you been putting out? Kind of weird music. <laughs> the very nice. first not surprising. <laughs> uh, the very first thing I wor- started working on was I just started recording in the in the DAW, the garage band, just finding sounds, recording myself. And like I put a music I put some music out really quickly where I felt like, hey, this is like a an accurate capture of where I'm at. Like what am I doing? The instruments that I play, the kinds of music I've been listening to. And then I kind of tasked myself with trying to put something out every month or so. Again, if it's a forced hiatus, what can I get from this? So for me, it was like listening to stuff, reading stuff, and like an excuse to be, you know, my everyone goes to bed and I can spend two hours in my studio playing keyboard or bass or reading poetry or checking out music that I had been putting off checking out and then trying to find the space to interact with that. So for me, like some of it's, might be in the jazz world, new music, creative music, like the label thing is really wonky. You definitely won't hear it on the radio. <laughs> uh, and it definitely fell more into the like, maybe lowercase m music of like, this is the sound of someone improvising and, and getting their hands dirty, and trying to explore sounds and spaces. So, Which is very cool to put out into the world, really. Because in a lot of ways, there's not enough of that. Everything that gets put out is just polished and nice and in neat little boxes. And so it's nice to have, have more that's not. Yeah. And that is the, I spend so much of my time in those worlds of, of hard to identify music, because at this point it, it could be jazz influenced. It could be blues influenced. It could come from European avant-garde or black American avant-garde. Like it, it kind of, I am in a very privileged position to be in a sampler platter situation to say, I like a little Roscoe Mitchell with a little Brian Eno sprinkled with a little, you know, Espion Svensson trio. What does that sound like through the lens of my lived experience on the limited ways that I play it all by myself? Those are things that if, without the, this last year of kind of forced, whatever, I would never have had the opportunity to explore. What a great opportunity then. Yeah. I mean, not that we wish for worldwide pandemics, but that doesn't mean that there can't be good outcomes. I mean, there's a certain level of guilt of being a subsidized artist, right? Being a full-time tenured community college music faculty member means that I have endured better than most because of the system that I'm in. And so I do feel some responsibility to kind of push the boundaries uh, as a risk taker, if not me who doesn't have necessarily have an artistic stake or an emotional stake, but not a financial stake to say like, yeah, I can put out the wackiest, weirdest, strangest thing that's in my mind. Just it's my identity. It's what I I can put it out. I can do it without compromise or I can collaborate with people who I'd love to collaborate with, with no thought of like, is this going to get us X, Y, Z? It's just a, we it's process oriented music. That's cool. And so how does that compare for you with playing live gigs? Yeah, I mean, the hustle is addictive. And Phoenix, for many years for me living in Phoenix, the hustle was 
playing theater work, playing touring acts that would come through town. None of those are particularly high dollar or high volume work, but being busy is always good. And in in Phoenix, especially, there's there's not always been a ton of places to play, whether original music or jazz music, I want to say that, but there's always been a cabaret or like a show. It's always been a show town. So being in and out of that circle over the last, you know, 15 years ish, you know, some people make a living. Phoenix is always cheap. It's always been an inexpensive place to live. So I know plenty of folks who can make a pretty good, comfortable living, just kind of playing hopscotch work here and there. And for me, I I did that as a younger musician, but again, having a full-time teaching gig allows you to say no, especially to working (laughs) conditions that you're not comfortable with or situations that aren't ideal, you know, knowing what a ticket goes for and then looking at how much I'm getting paid for that show being like, well, that doesn't, that doesn't work. That doesn't make any sense to me. I think I'm worth more than that or the, or the sheer volume of time driving to preparing for performing, especially if you're playing other people's music, you know, I just, I, my, I think my appetite for that waned. Maybe if the music was bigger and better or the money was better, but especially becoming a parent and having a full-time job, it was like, well, I just, I don't want my value to be in how many gigs I played or am I one of the first two or three people to get a call? I'd much rather work with people I love and make music with people who I really connect with. And again, doesn't pay, but that's okay. (laughs) I I say that's okay. At this point, you know, 28 year old me didn't think that for sure. Right. But 28 year old me didn't have a mortgage. So. (laughs) (laughs) Mortgages make a difference. Yeah. And kids and, and, and wanting to spend time and be around and be available. You know, my artistic self and my parental self are the same self. So why would I want, you know, what do I have to say about the human experience if I'm spending all this time away from my family? Like, I don't, it's not a value that I hold. That makes a lot of sense. How does this experience influence how you teach? Ooh, that's a really good question. I, here's what I know. I know that it's made me a more graceful and caring teacher. And I know that it's made me speak more directly to students and, and folks I work with in ensembles or in coursework about doing things that resonates with them. And I've heard other folks say, you know, you want to do things that you have an affinity for and like leaning into that idea, like, well, I have an affinity for this kind of music, or I have an affinity for making these sorts of choices around these sorts of musical problems and like leaning into that as opposed to saying, well, you should do it this way. It should, there's this kind of should or could and more like, hey, if, if you don't really want to do that, no one says you have to. If I'm working with a young guitar player, no one says you have to spend a bunch of years playing in a mediocre cover band. If you like that, you should do that. <laughs> if that's a value, if you want to do that for whatever personal reason or being on stage, absolutely. But certainly don't do it because you think you have to. I hope that we sort of burned that out across the artistic spectrum. You don't have to. If you want to, sure. But as a teacher, I want to keep leaning into the spaces where students are demonstrating interest or maybe I just have to get them through the first inch of that layer and then it then they can see how the world opens up. But if we're through the first inch and people are not in and they're, they're, they kind of peek through the ice and they're like, yeah, I don't want to get in that. It's like, cool, let's go someplace else. Like, we can go anywhere together. 
there's lots of places to go. And as someone who works, you know, I think outwardly identifying as jazz, you know, my experiences in indie rock and blues and other popular forms of music, you know, jazz for me, I I think of more as as an ethos or a mindset, right? You're either an improviser and that's something that you identify with and practice and engage with and and develop as the, the skills to make music and responses to other people's music in the moment, or you don't really have that skill. And I think we sort of just labeled it as jazz, but I have plenty of folks who I make music with who I, who don't identify as jazz musicians who exhibit all the same characteristics of like, oh, I can respond to that or I can add to that. It's almost like being a producer versus being a singer-songwriter or something like that, right? A producer's thinking bigger and a singer-songwriter might be thinking only about harmonics and melody or quality of voice. That makes a lot of sense. So going in the Wayback Machine... <laughs> How did you get started in music? Uh, well, I love. I'm. I was born in 1978, so I was lucky enough to be a kid when saxophone was all over the radio. You know, every tune had like a saxophone blowing section at the end of it. And being from the San Francisco Bay Area, my dad's favorite band and my favorite band when I was you know four, five, six years old was Huey Lewis and the News. So I loved the saxophone. I thought the saxophone was the coolest. I just thought it was so cool. And so when I was in fourth grade and you got to pick your instrument, I was like, well, of course. <laughs> there is no other choice. And I just, for me, being in being a, a little person and choosing the saxophone, I had some real positive things that happened early on. I happened to live in a town where the music store in town had a really great saxophone teacher. And my mom walked me into a music store and said, my son plays saxophone. He's going to take some lessons this summer. Who's here? And by dumb luck, it's just someone who's a brilliant, great saxophone teacher and musician and person. And and that person, his name is Dan Zinn, was, was a real mentor to me for my young music life. How wonderful. Yeah, it was real dumb luck in that sense. And parents who said like, well, you, you, you play this instrument in the summer, you seem to you know, enjoy it. Let's keep this going. That my, my mom who played flute through high school, my dad who played the family clarinet as it was passed to everyone in middle school, they had some understanding (laughs) of that, though not musicians themselves. And then like in sixth grade, like I, I got to play blue suede shoes as a solo in a talent show for like our sixth grade musical. And like positive reinforcement in at a young age is pretty positive. Yeah, it is. And when you're a not particularly athletic kind of brainiac kid going into the 1990s having an identity as a saxophone player or as a musician where you where I felt a lot of care and attention and positivity you know I I can't really shoot a basketball I'd love to play basketball but I can't really shoot it I'm not my brother's 65 I'm not 65 <laughs> like I'm <laughs> you know like you you kind of got to deal with the tools you have and I just I for me, getting to be a musician was like a series of really, like, I happened to go to a music camp where, like, I met a bunch of people who I just had such a great friendship with. To this day, one of my close friends, like, we've known each other since we were 12 years old at music camp. That's phenomenal. <laughs> and had it being in, like, just a really music-positive space, I sort of got to a point where it's like, well, I think I'm going to do this in college. And I ended up going to a place where, again, I just kept feeling positive reinforcement And like anyone else who keeps doing music into their adulthood, you meet older musicians who give you attention and positivity and the kind of support that says, yeah, keep doing that. Or you're doing this, don't try that. And and then my first real 
I got a job playing music at a theme park when I was in college. And so me and one of my best friends spent a whole summer being the the band at Paramount's Great America and like walking around the park playing music. And then I was just like, oh, well, I am going to do this. Like at 20, I was like, oh, wait, I'm not pretending anymore. Like I'm actually going to do this for my whole life. (laughs) This will just always be the thing. For me, it's always been about like, well, how do I keep this thing going? And for me, it was... I don't know if I want to be on the road or if I want to be doing music full time or if I'm good enough to do music all the time or to make those compromises. And so teaching, which I've loved doing since I was a section leader in high school, <laughs> allowed me the like safety to be like, well, I have some money and some time and some space to stay in the music world and then have my performing career be the extra piece that is the thing I'm working towards. It sounds like that plan has worked out beautifully for you. Yeah, I mean, I did spend a year not working in music. I worked as a, an admissions counselor for a college, working in the music area, but not really being in the identity of people know me as a musician, as a creative artist. I was still playing, I was doing other things. And like, that was a year of real sadness and and scrambling and pain of like, who am I? What do I do? How do I do this? And that year really spun me into the like, well, I'm going to have to get a terminal degree. I should go back and get my doctorate. I need to do this. Like I need to like finish the piece for me to say like, I went the whole way and at, you know, at 27 thinking the whole way, meaning I get a terminal degree in music education. Right. But since that point, I mean, even to this day, I think sometimes people are like, you do what? How do you do that? What's that thing? You're a music teacher. I'm like, well, I mean, I am, but I also like, I feel like I'm an artist. I'm a creative person and my outlet is hopefully in music, in sound, in all of that stuff. That's very cool. How do you stop it from stagnating? Or is that just not an issue? I mean, I can't imagine that it's never an issue. I'm lucky enough that I am in concentric circles of music making people. So there can be times where I'm spending a lot of time in one particular group whether it's one of the long-standing ensembles that I'm in or in something that kind of just pops up as a, hey, we're going to do this thing. Do you want to play? Or, hey, I need someone to play this thing on this recording. And then that kind of spins me into a, oh, well, I need to like listen to these things and like make quality artistic choices about, well, what should my sound be like? What kind of notes work? What, you know, what's the vibe? What's the articulation? And that kind of study will spin me into a new direction. Last summer, I did all the horn arrangements for this kind of pop almost like a beach record like something you'd put on to like be at the beach and like I really studied I really went you know I listened to the artist about what he wanted his vision to be and tried to try to do it in a way that felt like it was of that area of music and so that like stuff like I really really enjoy that study and like when something catches my ear or whether it's because I'm going to be paid to do it or whether because I'm in a group where I'm like, oh, I know it would be cool here if my saxophone sounded more like this thing. Let me go in that direction. So for me, like I, I love practicing. It's meditative. It's frustrating. It's it's always there. And so whether it's transcribing or improvising or composing, those things nourish me. And I know that when that is hard, it usually means that I'm being not nourished someplace else. You know, maybe I'm not paying enough attention to being active with my body or I'm not eating or sleeping particularly well or, oh, it turns out I had two gin and tonics each of the last three nights because I was just sort of chilling in the pool and like I feel low energy and like the kind of circular 
my emotional, physical, spiritual, music making, like all those things are spinning. And so when it stagnates, it, it's just another thing for me to investigate. Okay, what what is causing this? And some of it's just the natural, like, okay, this this was a highly intense thing. This is actually just recovery. It's totally normal. It's just rec- and accepting like, yeah, I can't really do much right now. Okay, well, what do I do when I don't feel... I mean, people might say inspired, but I don't necessarily think it's inspired. I'm with you. Right? I, I mean, inspi- what is inspired? I don't know. If you're paying me 600 bucks to write horn charts for three pieces, like, I'm inspired. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm working on a project right now where I'm writing jazz arrangements of 90s alt-rock tunes. So, like, Pearl Jam and oh, Tori Amos and some trip-hop stuff, sneaker pimps and whatever. And, like, it's cool. I also am, am like, it's part of a summer project that I'm being compensated for from, from the college. I applied for it. I had an idea. I put in for it. And then they're, they're literally paying me to do that research and that work. Am I inspired? Well, it was my idea in February, and they approved it. So my shit better be getting done. <laughs> you know, people I know who are really brilliant film composers or, or songwriters, like, it's not all, oh my gosh, I just had a great thought. It's like, well, shit, I got to do it. <laughs> When I find in writing, because I do that much more than music at this point in my life, that the more I write, the more I have to write about. And that if I skip a day or two or three, the next day that I sit down, I'm like, well, what am I going to write about? Whereas if I just do it every day, it just flows. Yeah. And, you know, the editing process is hard. But I, I do think a lot about the non-judgmental getting things out. So for me, that could be recording a bunch of stuff and then chopping it up later it could be writing a ton of things that are just in the flow and being like, hey, this this might be a piece or hey, this might be a stuff and then going back to it. It took me a long time to not be precious with things. I mean, like well into my 30s to be like, not every one of these things is precious. Let's just dump a bunch of stuff on the page <laughs> or record a bunch of stuff and then go back later. You have to go through the thing where you think where you imagine every idea you have is gold or every every line that I write on for a tune is like, oh, that's great. That's so cool. Like, yeah, sometimes it's just filler. <laughs> sometimes you just had to write the, the bullshit to write something that's actually good. I think that it probably takes to some degree writing enough that you realize that once you finish with these precious ideas, there will be more. Like you're not going to use this one and then be all used up or peak too soon. <laughs> Well, and, f- and for me, improvising is often one of those things that kind of keeps it fresh. So trying to find ways to, to access or re-access ideas. So when I say improvise, I mean just playing something in the moment of the moment in response to or not in response to something. So it might be I reach up to my shelf and pull down a book of poetry and say, okay, I read this line. Let me see if I can play that line on my saxophone. That's cool. It could be I go to an old notebook and I open up to a page and see a bunch of music or notes or ideas that I've written down and kind of re-engage with it and be like, oh, actually, this is kind of neat. I can spin this into another space. Or going to one of my bajillion recordings on my computer and being like, oh, this is the pile of things I didn't like. Let me go listen again. (laughs) It's valuable not to delete them all. It really is. And improvising... Like for me, improvising in general, if you're not doing it, as you're describing with writing, like if you're not improvising every day, if you're not trying to generate stuff every day, I mean, that muscle atrophies quick, yeah, it does. but it also can come back really quickly. 
Um, yes. I, you know, I, when I talk to students, I'm like, look, nothing, there's no magic. It's not athletic. It's not like if you put a bat, a baseball bat in my hand and you put me on the field for the San Francisco giants and I got dumb lucky and I hit a home run. That is conceivably possible. If you put a violin in my hand and you push me out on stage at Carnegie hall, I can't hit a home run. Like there's no option for me to just <laughs> do like, you know, that's not going to happen. Right. The other thing I've been doing is, especially in the last few years is playing other instruments. So I, I spent most of my young life playing just saxophone. And then in my early twenties, I started to play flute a lot. And then by necessity, clarinet. These days I play a lot of flute, a lot of saxophone and some bass clarinet. And those are kind of the three spaces I perform in. So those are like, there's things I do with those three instruments as a performer to be able to play in a new music setting or to be able to play in an, a jazz setting or a, a Broadway show or whatever. But I, in the last maybe seven or eight years in teaching high school and college jazz combos, inevitably I, I'm missing one rhythm section instrument. So like I'm a spectacularly mediocre drummer. <laughs> I am a not serviceable bass player, but if you put me in a middle school jazz band, my time feel is crushing. <laughs> and like I can fake enough of piano that if I never solo, You'd be like, oh, I guess that guy's all right. I mean, I guess that's okay. If a lay person. You can yes. fake it. Uh, and then I, I picked up <laughs> trumpet over the quarantine because I was bored. And I, I I wish I had more time. It's so exhausting to learn something new. <laughs> yes. But it's always good. The you know beginner mind is a fun space to explore as a creative person. Well, and brass is a totally different animal. I don't know enough yet at all even after running jazz bands and doing all that stuff for 20 years. But playing electric bass, I've learned so much about how things are constructed through that lens, as opposed to the lens of a single line instrument, like a saxophone or a flute, you know, sure. just like how it feels, where things are, how they move. And like that has opened up a whole new world for me to think about, oh, well, what if I played the saxophone more like I was playing bass? And when friends of mine who... I have a friend of mine, John Armstrong, who's like an incredible saxophone player and an incredible bass player. And I'm just like, oh, is this how John thinks about music? Is he able to like be in his bass brain and then be in a saxophone brain? Like, is he composing in his bass brain or a sax? Like, it was very, it's very exciting to explore that new space. That's fun. You should not play the saxophone more like a trumpet. <laughs> I wish we had mutes. That's the, the timbral thing about the trumpet I love so much. I just love it. And... The saxophone timbral thing, which is reed-oriented and all, is fine. But, you know, like, just a nice low trumpet sound with a muted is so awesome. And I can yeah, do it, it for, like, two and a half seconds. And so I can record that two and a half <laughs> seconds and then pretend, like, you know. <laughs> I'm lying. It's more like one second. It's more, and a lot of editing. <laughs> So in the middle of all that, what's your biggest frustration? Time. I just wish I had more time. And I and I wish I was nicer to myself earlier. I wish I had let... I mean, that, that's my, you know, it's all retrospective frustration. I wish I had said no more earlier. I wish I had committed to things that I liked earlier. Like right now, my frustration is just simply having time and energy. Finding those two things... it in concert has been hard when i have time it's not that i'm focusing on efficiency but there's enough things that need to get done in whatever time is 
and I feel like that's made me a better practicer. It's made me made me a better preparer, and it's allowed me to kind of slip into some of those spaces faster. But like Friday, I had a chunk of time to to work, and I I like transcribe I'm transcribed some stuff. I wrote some stuff, put some stuff into the in Sibelius into the software to put it on paper after I went through my analog process. And you know, three hours gone. And then I reemerge and I'm in the pool with my kids and I have to slip out of that skin really fast. And that's, I feel like I'm better at that and going to probably get better at that. There's just never enough time. True story. Do you think not commuting has changed how you slip from one to the other? I mean, I've heard from a lot of people that they're missing commuting because of that. I actually don't. It is hard. And I... In this last year, I've been operating at my day job as a as a faculty member. I've been working as a as a part time administrator. I've been working on some college initiatives. Like I've been doing more administrative college level work. So that means meetings, and I love being able to like walk out of the shower, dry my hair, grab a cup of coffee, sit down at my desk, and I'm in a meeting. I love being able to have the interface with my family in between and betwixt that, where I feel that high touch thing. And I'm, I'm going to miss that a lot. Like I can't think too hard about my kids going back to school full time without kind of like feeling the ache already. And, and my wife and I have talked about that at length, like that ache is real. And also the value of like, and I'm leaving it at work and now I'm home and I'm leaving it at work and now I'm home. But I, I don't really want to go back to commuting at, at all. I love my house and I love my studio space and I love my family and I want to spend all my time here and I want to be careful with where I'm putting my energy outside of that and commuting. If I need alone time, I can go sit on the back porch. I can go put my feet in the pool and put on a podcast or I can go sit on the front porch and text three people who I am thinking that I'm missing or I want to engage with. But the thought of getting in my car and driving 25 minutes to, to sit in my office no, thank you. <laughs> and I, I, my office in full honesty, like I don't, though I, though I work as a music faculty member, I don't have an office that's like a practice rehearsal space. Like I have an office that's in a bunch of other offices. So it's not even like my office is a space where I could go and there's a piano and, and I can make sound and I could be in a space like I am right now in my home studio. When I'm at my office, like I can meet with students, I can work on my computer. But if I were to go practice at school, like I'd be taking a practice room away from a student or I'd be kind of loping around campus trying to find where I'm least annoying when a class is happening. (laughs) No, thank you. So I doubt that there's an answer to this, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Of all of the music that you've created, do you have a favorite? I mean, the things that have meant the most to me is all about the people that I'm making music with. So when I make, when my wife and I make music together, whether we're improvising or we're working on a piece of music together, we, we did a recording during the quarantine of a dear friend of mine, Andrew Artazoya, wrote a piece for saxophone and piano, a classical work, and Ashley and I worked on it and recorded it in our home. And I'm so fucking proud of how good it sounds. I'm so grateful that Andrew asked us to record it. I'm so grateful that we were able to do that. And that process was so meaningful for us in the August, September, October time of 2020 that we did it. 
that that's really special and stands apart from kind of everything else. But that's also true of music I make with other people in my life who I, I have a special musical relationship with. Sure. Her and I making music together in particular, you know, she's a classical pianist. She comes from that world. I'm a jazz saxophone player. But to play a classical saxophone piece together is like, you know, we're, we're stretching in all of the fun and interesting ways it is to engage with one another. And I'm super proud of the work. And if there's a gravestone where you like hit a play button and it's me playing and it, and it's not my improvised music, I, it would have to be that for, for all of the, the background reasons. That's a fantastic way to explain that. (laughs) (laughs) My last question for you. Is there anything that you wish that people in general who don't know you, who might engage with your work, understood about your work or your path? Wow, that's a great question. I think I'm really funny. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I think I'm funny and sincere in equal measure. And I feel like my work, though, though not overtly funny, I like to think that most of the music I'm playing has a smirk. Because I want it to be a little bit naughty or a little bit dangerous or a little bit off kilter. And especially when the music is uncomfortable, you know, I'm not trying to like out weird anybody. (laughs) I had a, I had a, a very talented, brilliant friend of mine who I was making music with once. And he says to me, Keith, why do you play those notes? Like why those notes? And I was like, I don't know. I think it sounds good. And he's like, you can't be serious. And I was like, I mean, I'm kind of serious. <laughs> like, uh, I do think it sounds good. And like, I also acknowledge that like, that might be too spicy for you. Or you don't like cilantro. <laughs> and that's cool too. But I like it. And if I don't like it, then it would be hard for me to like stand behind it. Sure. So like when I say that like, my music is sincere and funny. You know, there's also a level there where like, I try to put a lot of thought into it. Even in music that's wholly improvised, I'm in the moment I'm there like that. It's an accurate capture of that precise thing. I don't want to take it too seriously, but at the same time, it's deadly serious. And so there's that weird balance of like, yeah, I get that this feels a little overwrought or this feels a little whatever, but that's the work that I put into it. And that's how important it is to me to like share. I have no concept of how to take compliments or praise. I, I wish I could hear that as much as I hear criticism, but my cross to bear is that even people who I love and trust beyond any human capability, when they give me compliments, negative critic is really loud. That voice is annoying and has been there for a long time and is hard to quiet. I hear you. I think that you're in good company with that. I think a lot of people have have that going on. The we making part of music is like, I wrote this in a social media post as I was chewing on it intensely, which is, you know, I used to think that my responsibility was to be really critical, to be really hard, because I needed to be the stone that people were sharpened on, whether it was my bandmates or my students. And my response was always, if you think I'm being mean to you, I'm twice as mean to myself. So if you can't take this, that's too bad for you. And like, 
God, it's a fucking terrible thought. It's such a negative, awful, mean thing. But I also have to acknowledge that, like, that voice also got me to where I am. You know, I... It's like, maybe it's like in the movie where you're like, that friend probably helped you get from there to there, but like you're in this space now. You should get rid of that friend. Like that person's actually not your friend. Like that person may have helped you get here, but like you're in a different space now and that person's not appropriate. I don't know. Maybe it's a goodwill hunting thing. I don't, I'm not trying to think what movie, but it's, it's like that idea. Like those are friends for another time, but that because it's the self, how do you get rid of that? How do you change that relationship? I will take your answers on how to change that negative self-talk. I actually read about this exact thing fairly recently where a person took that voice and gave it a name and a persona other than themselves. Wow. Wow. And that enabled them to talk back. And that separating that helps because then you don't feel like or you feel less like you don't feel like it doesn't magically disappear, but it feels less like you're fighting with yourself because you can disconnect it a little bit. I like that. I like that a lot. It, it has been helpful to have a long time alone in the last year plus to kind of sort through some of that, just some of the, the real deep self-talk, right? The forced sabbatical space of aloneness. Yeah, that's really... I gotta find a name for that person. It's it's funny too because it's sometimes it's a comparison for me, right? Well, so and so, right? Like that weird like, am I measuring up? And that competition is so interwoven into music making. Yes, uh, it is. I mean, I'm I'm such an asshole about high school marching band, even though I loved my experience and I was in a very competitive marching band. And it was super meaningful, and the relationships I made was, was powerful, and all those things. But I also now know how painful that was for so many people. And that just because I could sustain competitiveness or I could sustain the we're frenemies or whatever bullshit, that that's like super toxic. <laughs> and like, <laughs> like just because, you know, just because it happened to me or I experienced it doesn't mean it's okay. But that toxicity right. of competition, especially as you get older and it starts to be about who's making money or who's on this tour or, or what bands are you playing with or what recordings are you on or who are you first call for this kit? Like all that shit is so, again, as a subsidized musician, I am allowed to just jettison a lot of that. And if I was still trying to like hustle the thing, I, I would probably still be chewing on that fat. Sure. Well, it's everywhere. You know, competition in and of itself, I don't, I don't want to sort of poo-poo the idea that there's ranking or hierarchy or good or bad, but that it's way more subjective and that it's way less fair. You know, so many students just don't believe me. It's not fair. It's not a meritocracy. And you're not going to get a fair shake. And if you can just say that to yourself, you can excuse a lot of the pain that you might otherwise feel when you feel passed over or you're struggling or, or, or. Yes. Going back to the mental piece a bit, because there was another thing that I thought of that a therapist told me a long time ago, is to find this, this space where you were, where that was told to you. Because it's probably someone else's voice. And figure out who you were at that time, and then take yourself under your wing. And give little Keith what little Keith needed that the grown-ups didn't give. I really love that. <laughs> And if you can do it without weeping, you're not really doing it. <laughs> I, I feel so much responsibility 
for the younger musicians that I work with. And though I know I can't be all things to all people, first, you can't go back and, and apologize to every person who you, over the course of a teaching career or a performing career, you know, none of us get those opportunities. But to do better for the students that I'm working with and helping them choose a path that is most resonant with them feels like some small version of, okay, well, I can, I'm doing better, so let me do better for these young musicians. And I, you know, I take some of the positive feedback of young musicians who I've mentored or been there to help or, or played some small part, like to still be engaged with them musically, friends, socially, etc. You know, those are some of the feedback loops I feel as positive because I don't necessarily feel that with people who are mentors for me or people who, who helped me along the way. Like I don't, sure. I feel let down by most of the people who have served in that role. All of the men in those roles, I feel let down by. I'm lucky enough to have had people like Sandy Stoffer in my life who, as a mentor of like, hey, don't do that. <laughs> oh, I was doing that? Yeah, Keith, don't do that. Oh, thank you. It's hard for me to hear, but you're right. I should stop that. As opposed to the sort of like letting it go or ignoring it or whatever, accountability is not bad. Absolutely not. Well, the other thing about the last year is like living through that moment just as a society, much less as an artist, accountability is not bad. It can certainly be wielded as a weapon if people want to do that. And those are hard things to take too. Again, nothing's fair. And being only responsible for me, right? I can only do 50% of this. <laughs> Knowing that not everyone that you're interacting with is operating in good faith or whatever, that's another challenge of working with young musicians is like just letting them do the thing they're going to do even if they're baby snakes even if they're going to bite and put too much venom and it's going to ruin something you're just like well you're gonna have to go through that i'm here for you on the other side those are your choices right baby snake i love it you're an arizona boy <laughs> at this point yeah <laughs> totally. thank you thank you thank you so much Dude, that was awesome thank you it was. Before we hit stop, where can people find your music? Yeah, you know, I, I work in a lot of different genres, but the music that I'm making for just me is on Bandcamp, which is kind of the best interface for that. And you can look up Keith B. Kelly, or I, I think I've been using the, I, I've been operating a, a quote unquote record label, EXPHX, Experimental Phoenix, or a grand apparatus. I've also done a bunch of recording for Edge Tone Records, which is a great record label out of San Francisco. There's some like Keith Kelly group stuff out of there. But I work most frequently in Phoenix with Running From Bears. We usually play once a month at the Lost Leaf. That's a good place to see us live. I can vouch it's for that. Fun. And then the two other groups I'm I'm playing with most frequently in Phoenix is a group called Union Thirty Two. Two saxophones, vibes, bass, drums, and we play like jazz arrangements of pop tunes. So we've done a record where we did all of Sticky Fingers by the Rolling Stones and all of Revolver by the Beatles. We just did a Led Zeppelin Houses of the Holy thing. So again, it's it's people-driven. Uh, and then I play with a free jazz trio called Static Announcements, where it's like electroacoustic weirdness. But like the thing I love about Phoenix so much is that it's all overlapping. Like the people in all these ensembles are overlapping because you want to make music with your friends. You want to make music with people who you care about and who you can be honest and who like you. Man, making music with people who don't like you fucking sucks. Yeah, <laughs> like, <does. laughs> you know, I think so many people don't know, like 
yeah, but when you get to make music with people who you like and who like you like, that is a that's a life changing experience, and you want more of it. So those those would be the places to to check out. I also have a keithbkelly.com, but it's pretty dormant because I was using it to promote gigs, but there aren't any gigs. So <laughs> so Bandcamp, Bandcamp, check it in the show notes. <laughs> Our editor is Heat G-Check, co-editor Rocket Kid, produced by Heat G-Check. To learn more about me, Heat, or more about this podcast, go to OrdinaryChaosPodcast.com. Sound design and recording by Keith Kelly. You can learn more about Keith and his work at www.KeithBKelly.com. Cobrain Storm by Rocket Kid and Cat Girl. Ordinary Chaos is an ad-free podcast. Because ads are annoying. To support the podcast, go to OrdinaryChaosPodcast.com. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.